I'm happy to report this morning that the first half of our Uganda team has made it back here home safely, and the second half of the team uh, should be back in just a few days. But man, we are hearing some absolutely incredible stories of what God is doing uh, in the people of Uganda and the people that our team was able to reach out to this week. And so y'all continue to pray for that second half of the team as they head back, and then also pray for our friends uh, and, our, and our church partners uh, over there as they continue the work that God is doing. Well, this morning, I have the honor to introduce you to our guest speaker this morning. Uh, Dr. Roger Sappington is here with us today. Um, Dr. Roger is the executive pastor of Central Bible Church in Fort Worth. Uh, He has served there the last 12 years. Uh, His heart is to see Christ followers experience the joy of living as missional disciples. That doesn't sound like us at all, right? (laughs) That's right on point, man. That's awesome. Uh, Roger and his wife, Kelly, have been married since 2006 and have three children, Colin, Brady, and Harper. And he is also the author of a devotional entitled 30 Days in Exile, Living for Christ with Courage and Expectancy. And I'm excited to tell you all this morning that we will have free copies of that devotional in the lobby for each family to pick up on your way out today. But Legacy, can you join Join me this morning in giving a warm legacy welcome to Dr. Roger Sappington. Well, good morning, Legacy Church. You guys doing well this morning? Uh, I love your pastor. Uh, Kevin and I have been friends for uh, the past 12 years, and uh, he is just a dear friend, and uh, I, I love how much he loves you. You know, when he and I talk about uh, pastoral uh, things that are going on in, in his life and my life, one of the things that always comes across is how much he cares for you. And, you know, over these past, I think it's 10 years that he's been here now, uh, he, has, he has proven time and time again uh, his calling to be the pastor of Legacy Church. And, uh, you know, I, you may not know this because you don't, you don't know me, but my, my in-laws, uh, my wife and her family, actually attended Legacy in the 80s and the 90s. And so when, uh, when Kevin was, was applying to uh, be your pastor, I was so excited to, to hear that this church was going to have a, a man of God who was going to stand uh, in the gap for you, praying for you, leading you, uh, bringing God's word to you, and uh, just so thankful for this time. Thank you as well that you were willing to give him a sabbatical. Um, pastors get tired. And uh, it's important to, to give them some rest every once in a while. And here's what I know, though. Even though he's getting rest, you know, I was talking to Lindsay about this earlier. This sabbatical is going to be hard for him, okay? If you, if you know Kevin, you, you, you know this. And so pray that, that God would give him the ability to just exhale, to, to, to be with the Lord, for him, him to, to be okay with, with not being here. Because once again, he, he loves to be here with you, but he also loves to be in control, and so, <laughs> you know, oh uh, yeah, yeah, these are strong laughs from this area. Kevin, when you're watching this later on, I don't know who this was down here, but they, you know, here's one of the things I, I, I love about Kevin's transformation as a person, and it actually has nothing to do with his pastoral skills, it has everything to do with his guns. Have y'all noticed this? Like, I don't know what happened from Central Bible Church, you know, 10 years ago to come to Lexi Church here, but all of a sudden, man, and the man brings out the gun shows about every single Sunday. I was wondering, what should I wear to preach? Because every church has unique culture and kind of what they dress. And here's what I saw. I saw a medium-sized, maybe small-sized shirt on a guy every Sunday. No. I'm oh, sorry, Kevin. Sorry. No, no. no, but I, I'm, I, I'm impressed. I'm a bit envious. And so I, I decided to wear a, a, a button-up instead. So no, there wouldn't be any, any competition. 
Um, just about everyone here is familiar with the 1939 movie, The Wizard of Oz. Uh, you, you've seen it, you know it. In it, the protagonist, Dorothy, she's taken up in this, uh, this cyclone, this tornado, from her black and white experience in Kansas to this technicolor dreamland in a place called Oz. And though, though Oz is, is fanciful in, in many ways, it's also pretty darn scary. Uh, there's this nasty witch. She has an army of, of, of flying monkeys, which, you know, it's just, if, if, if you and I were experiencing that, we'd be, be pretty scared. And Dorothy just wants one thing. She wants, there's just one thing she desires, and that's to return home. She, she wants to leave this place that is, is scary and terrifying and find her way back to Kansas. And, you know, I think sometimes as believers, we feel the same way. You know, this place has never been our home. This world, this country, it's, it's never been our true home. But over the last number of years, I think it's increasingly felt foreign to us. It's increasingly felt strange and, and, and scary. And oftentimes, we want to go back to some place, some experience. We want to leave this particular moment in time and go to a place that we feel is safe. And yet, God has called us to be here in this Oz, if you will, and, and in many ways to flourish. And in fact, you've been, uh, you've been hearing sermons over the past, uh, I guess, month or two now about what it means to live in exile. And this morning, we're going to continue that. We're going to look at a passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21, where Peter provides us, and really the Holy Spirit provides us, three exhortations or three encouragements, and how to live faithfully as an exile. So I'll invite you to turn there in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1 as we look at these. And as you're turning there, let me just remind you, you've probably, maybe you've even studied this text uh, before. Philippians 3.20 tells us that our citizenship is in heaven, that the true place where we're to find our identity and our home is, is elsewhere. Um, but for the time being, in this life, we live as resident aliens, if you will. We, we, we live as exiles in this place. But one of the things we need to do in the midst of our exile is to be continually reminded from God's Word of how should we live? What does this look like? How do we seek to be faithful as, as Christ's followers? And so, uh, three exhortations for exiles. And the first one is this. First exhortation you're going to see that Peter gives us is that exiles should live with resurrection hope. Look at verse 13 of 1 Peter 1. He writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. His first encouragement is to live with resurrection hope. And the reason being is that, that these Christians, these, these brothers and sisters uh, that, that were living in, in what is now modern-day Turkey, they were experiencing significant suffering for the faith. They were, they were being persecuted. Uh, at this point in time, I'm sure some of them were uh, losing their jobs, no longer able to carry on commerce. Uh, some of them had had their, their families abandon them. Uh, maybe even some of them had experienced some measure of physical harm. And, you know, if, if, if they really sat down 
and took inventory of their experience, if they, if they allowed themselves to dwell on all of the challenging things that they were experiencing, because they were Christians, they could have easily lost hope. And so Peter wants them to be reminded, to, to move their, their eyes, their focus, away from everything that's happening around them, and to turn their attention to something that is sure, something that is guaranteed, something that ought to lead them to hope. And that is the return of Christ and the resurrection that awaits us. Just last week in 1 Peter 1, you were, you were studying, the I guess, the first 12 verses. And in verse 4, there's this passage that actually describes what the, the resurrection will, will be like, what that experience will be like. It says that Christians will receive an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. If you think about that day uh, when Christ returns, when, when we receive uh, the fullness of the resurrection, think about some of these benefits. First of all, we're going to receive a body that is incapable of experiencing harm in any sort of way. A, a, a body that is imperishable. Have any of you ever seen a, a superhero movie? I, I think like The Man of Steel, which is one of the more recent movies about Superman. I remember the scene where like Superman is being dragged like deep through the concrete, like, you know, eight feet deep, you know, half a mile long, and Superman is not hurt. There's, there's nothing about that experience that's going to bring any harm to him whatsoever. And though, I know it sounds crazy because, listen, if, if, you, if you bump your toe too hard, you, you, you want to say words you shouldn't say. I mean, I'm kind of the same sort of way. But in heaven, in a resurrected body, you, that's not possible. It, it will be incapable for us to experience any measure of physical pain or harm. And so... Peter's saying, hey, look, you may be experiencing physical harm right now because you're a Christian. It's not just because you live in a, in a broken world. No, people may literally be um, bringing harm to you. So I want you to set your eyes on that time when you'll have a body that'll be unlike anything you could imagine. But the resurrection is not just physical. It's, there's also a spiritual resurrection that's occurring. You and I will have a spirit and a soul that's incapable of sin. Like, not only will we not be bent that direction, there, there won't be this thing called temptation. I mean, if you think about Jesus, and Jesus is fully God, and he's, he's fully man. So if you think about the fully man part of him, like, he never sinned. It was, it, it was not part of his nature being fully God and fully man to sin. He was perfectly obedient. And so in the resurrection, we will experience this Perfection of being perfectly obedient. And so Peter says, set your, your hope, set, set your eyes fully on those things. Because if you look too much at the world around you, you're going to be discouraged. Not only that, but we'll also have a perfect relationship with one another and a perfect relationship with God. No longer will there be strife. No longer will there be contention in the world unlike what we experience today. Now, here's the problem. Let, let, let's be honest. Oftentimes in life, though we know as Christians, we're to set our hope fully on the return of Christ, 
and the resurrection that awaits us, we oftentimes put our hope in other things. And this is why in this life we sometimes get discouraged. It's why we sometimes despair. Sometimes we put our hope on our political candidate or party winning an election. And when that doesn't happen, or even sometimes when that happens, we end up discovering that that's not where our hope should be. Other times we put our hope in something like, the, like a bull market, returning to the stock market and you know, our, our, our 401k, whatever it is, continually rising. If only that will happen, then, then life will be okay. But we know that's not the way life works. No, the stock market goes up and down, and sometimes it goes down at exactly the wrong time. Others of us sometimes put our hope in finding the perfect mate or maybe even the perfect job. We, we think if we, if we could just discover these things that we'll finally have peace in this life. But here's what we know. Every single one of those things I just listed, that can be lost in a minute. And even when we do receive them, they ultimately are not capable of providing us the joy and satisfaction that only Christ can bring. And so, so Peter's saying, look, I, you've got to take your eyes off of the things that are seen and heard and felt and put your mind, your devotion upon things that are unseen, things that are actually eternal. But this is hard work. It's easy being pessimistic. Uh, in, in fact, I, I read this quote this week as I was studying this passage. Uh, th- this philosopher said, I am optimistic about the future of pessimism. <laughs> he, he, he understood human nature. He, he, he got this, that by nature, we're just easily kind of like, oh, you know, uh, you know we're just, we, we got this angst about us. So Peter, knowing this as well, that this is kind of common human nature, Here's what he said. He said, if we're going to be hopeful, we have to prepare our minds for action. That's what it says there in verse 13. Prepare your minds for action. Now, here's the thing about our English translations. They do a really good job, but sometimes uh, it's fun to look at the Greek. And do you know what the Greek actually says? It says, gird up the loins of your mind. Seriously, if if you've been in church a long, long time, you maybe heard a pastor say this, but gird up the loins of your mind. That sounds like something inappropriate. (laughs) I'm like, you know, gird up the loins of your mind, but it's not, it's not. So I I wanted to show you, please hear me, it's not inappropriate, but I want to show you a picture of what girding up the loins, uh, girding up the loins actually looks like, okay? Uh, This is helpful here. So back in the day during Jesus' time, men would wear something called a tunic, okay? See, like this long, uh, you know, dress-type thing, except it was the thing that dudes wear. And uh, that, that style of, of dress, you couldn't run in easily. You couldn't even do hard work in. You definitely could not go to battle with your tunic low like that. And so here's what you would do. You see the steps here. You would pull up your tunic, and then you would bunch it up front. And then... I had to read this to make sure I understood it right. You would pull it through underneath where it creates like a diaper. <laughs> then <laughs> you could see there, see the red arrow swinging underneath. And then, and then you, would, you, would, you would pull up the wings and you would tie it in front. And this was girding up your loins. Now, the reason you would do this is, then you see the guy here. Look, he's got a sword in his hand and everything. He's ready for battle. 
He's, he's ready for action. He's ready to take whatever steps he needs to take so that he can do warfare. You know, the thing about being hopeful is that in many respects, it is spiritual warfare. You know, the enemy, he is always seeking to discourage us, to, to seek to bring us low. He, he wants us to get our minds off of Jesus and onto the things around us. The things in Oz that scare us. You know, flying monkeys and all that kind of stuff. And so how do we actually prepare our minds for action? How do we gird up the loins of our mind? Well, it's really simple. It's really simple. It's just a matter of doing it. Write this down. More word, less world. That's simple. More word, less world. And it's like, wait, Roger, I, I kind of knew that before I walked in. I, I, is, it, you know, is this the, the price of admission, me sitting here just hearing this phrase, more word, less world? Well, here's the thing, is that the Word of God is the thing that actually transforms our mind. It's the thing that continually brings us back to the reality of who God is and who we are and what He's doing in the world and what He promises to do in the, the ages ahead. And, and, and the reality is, is if we actually took inventory of our lives, of just our daily lives and weeks, here's what we would find for many of us. And, I, and I'm guilty of this many days and weeks as well. We have far too much intake of the world. And so we need, we need to read the word more and sing the word more and talk about it more with our loved ones, and even the ones that we don't love. You know, we, we, we bring the word into different situations. You know, Deuteronomy 6 is a great passage that describes just like, you know, when you rise and when you go about your way and when you lie down, you know, all, all throughout your, your day, we need to turn off social media a little bit more and turn down talk radio a little bit more and Stop streaming so much. You know, Psalm 1 is a great passage of Scripture. Maybe many of you have it memorized here. Blessed is the man or blessed is the woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight or her delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted besides streams of, of water whose leaf does not wither. And all he does, he prospers. And that's God's desire, is that, that the Word of God would be this thing that we delight in, that we meditate on. And as we do, we prepare ourselves for action. And here's what action is, friends. It's whatever God has called you to do in the day in which you live. So today, there's things for which you're prepared to be active in, to be ready to do spiritual battle in. You, you, need, to, you need to pull up, pull up your, your tunic and get ready for battle. We need to do that, though, through God's Word. Kelly, my wife, I can't, I can't see where she's seated, somewhere in here. Um, we went to New York City a number of years ago, and uh, Kelly was emphatic. Roger, while we're there, we're going to do a carriage ride in Central Park. And I was all for it, but here was the problem. It's expensive! Oh my gosh, I, I don't even want to admit to you how much we paid because then you think like pastors are rich or something and then you'll be, you know, you, you'll be talking to the finance committee about lowering Kevin's salary or something. Like, 
I mean, it was nuts expensive, but I said, okay, fine, we'll do it. It's like the one thing she has to do, because it was a birthday trip for my birthday, but it was one thing she wanted to do. But here's what I noticed. <laughs> Men, remember, we, we need to honor our wives. So we get in this carriage, and as we're, actually, as we're walking up the carriage, here, what do I notice about the horses? Horses have blinders on. Remember, if you've ridden a carriage, almost all carriage horses have blinders. Why? Well, because they could easily get distracted. You think about Central Park. Like Inside Central Park, it's pristine. It's pretty quiet. But on the edges of Central Park, it's like New York City craziness. You know, there's sirens going off. There's people all over the place. Everybody's shouting, screaming. You know, there's lights everywhere. And, and if, if those horses didn't have blinders on, they'd get spooked. You know, in some respects, living in this, this Oz that we're in, which sometimes feels like the, the outskirts of, of Central Park, we need to have these gospel blinders on. Don't, they, don't, they don't take away our ability to see. They simply reduce the distraction of the world around us so we can carry on our task. And so this here, this is the first encouragement that Peter gives is that you and I need to live with resurrection hope as we set our hope fully on the day of Christ's return. So that's the first. Let's now look at the second exhortation or the second encouragement. And that is that God desires that exiles would live with reflected holiness. Live with reflected holiness. That's found in verses 14 through 16. Peter writes, As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now there's something really important that we need to recognize as we jump into this this second exhortation to live with reflected holiness. And that is that before Peter tells them what to do, He reminds them of who they are. He says, obedient children. He wants them to be reminded of their identity as adopted sons and daughters of the Father. So before he tells them to be holy, he says, you're children. Now, John 1.12, many of you know this. Uh, John 1.12 says, "But but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so God has adopted into his family all of those who have trusted him, all those who have believed in his name. And this identity that that he's given them is an identity that's based upon his love, his grace. It's based upon the fact that he will never leave us nor forsake us, that we have a firm foundation as his sons and daughters. And this new identity as his sons and daughters ought to lead to a new ethic or a a new way of living. And that's actually why Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the patterns of or the passions of your former ignorance. Now, their former ignorance was the time before they knew Christ, the time when they lived in ignorance not knowing the grace or the person of Jesus Christ. And so Peter says, don't go back. That's not who you are. 
And in fact, all of us to some degree understand when there's a change in relationship, there ought to be a change in behavior. That a change in relationship leads to a change in behavior. Let me give you an example, for, particularly for those of you that are married here. Uh, you'll, you'll understand this. Uh, and I'll speak to the men. I can make fun of them more easily. Men, before we were married, we could live like slobs, not putting our laundry in the laundry basket and leaving stuff around the kitchen and not really taking care of ourselves. But, before, but after we got married, right, there was a change of relationship led to a change of behavior, right? Yeah, maybe for mo- most, most of you guys, it, it should. Uh, men, but before we were married, we could have our own schedule. Uh, we could stay out late with our buddies. We could, if, you know, those of you that are young, you play video games or, or whatever your, your, your hobby was. But you set your own schedule. You got up late. You did whatever. But when you got married, well, no, you didn't have your own schedule. You had a joint schedule. Uh, before you were married, uh, and this, uh, this goes for both, <laughs> uh, before you were married, uh, you could have close relationships with someone of the opposite sex with whom you were attracted to, and that was okay. After you were married, then it was important not to have close... Re- I'm not, please hear me, I'm not saying you can't have relationships with people of the opposite sex. I, I just mean that they shouldn't be your, your, your best intimate friend. That's, that's for your spouse to be. So this change in relationship leads to a change in behavior. And, that, and that's, what, that's what Peter's saying, that because you are... God's children, sons and daughters. As exiles in this world, in this Oz, don't live like you used to live in the passions of your former ignorance. And you may be wondering, what, well, what is that? What are these passions? You, you know what they are. It's all, of the, all the ways that our flesh seeks to lure us away from God's best. It's things like sex outside of God's design. It's things like trying to just accumulate more and more stuff and wealth. It's things like trying to get more and more power and control over people or or situations. Like all of these things were the passions of our former ignorance. But there's really, there's an overarching thing that describes the passions of our ignorance, our former ignorance, and that's this. It's a little bit found in the maxim of our age, which is this. You do you. Meaning, you do whatever you want to do. You, you know, live by whatever your heart, you know, says. You do you. And and, and really what you do you means is that you're king. You're God. This is your life. You choose to live it as you see fit. And really all of those passions, all of those passions are rooted in that sin. And so what's the remedy? Well, Peter says the remedy is, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but no, be holy as the one who called you is holy. This is the remedy, to be holy. Now, holiness means moral purity, but it actually means something far deeper. It means, holiness means that we set ourselves apart for God and His purposes, that we come underneath His Lordship, And this is his calling to us, to be holy as he is holy. Uh, Paul said something very similar in Romans 12.1, that that we would present our bodies, present our lives as a living sacrifice, 
holy and pleasing to God. And so as exiles, as as people who live in this Oz as, as resident aliens, you and I need to moment by moment, day by day, day by day, remind ourselves, this is not my life. This is this is God's life. I, 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 the life that I live, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And, and so, so you, you, we pray prayers like, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, I, must, I must decrease that he may increase. This is God's desire for us that we would surrender. Surrender as exiles is an important thing. Uh, there's this video that, that I want you to watch. It's by Dr. Tony Evans, and it, it really gets at the heart of what it means to give our lives over to the Lord. You watch your screens. Surrender is simply, yes, not my will, thy will be done. Like the story of the chicken and the pig. They're going down the street one day. They come to a grocery store. There's a sign in the window. It says bacon and eggs desperately needed. <laughs> the chicken looks at the pig the pig looks at the chicken and the chicken says to the pig pig let's go help out the grocer I'll give him the eggs you give him the bacon pig say you crazy <laughs> chicken said what's the problem pig said it's real simple for you it's a contribution for me it's the whole thing most of us don't mind giving God an egg here and an egg there. Here, the egg, there, an egg everywhere, an egg, egg. We'll, we'll give God a little something, something. We'll give God an egg and an egg and an egg because you can lay an egg and walk away. But God wants chitlins, pork chops, ham hocks. He wants a whole pig. And to give God bacon, you can't do that without giving up you. We are afraid like the pig. If I give God the bacon, there'll be nothing left. Oh, that's a great video. To surrender, you know, a, a, a living sacrifice, you know, giving God the bacon every single day. I mean, literally laying ourselves down before him and saying, Lord, this is your life. It's, it's not mine. And, and that's what it, what it really means to live with reflected holiness. You know, there's this passage in uh, Romans 8 where it says that God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. See, you see here, Peter says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And, and, and Paul says in Romans, be conformed to the image of his son. And the way that we do that is to allow the Spirit of Christ, Spirit of Christ, to live out the, the life of surrender that Jesus offered day by day. What we have to do is simply be willing to allow God to work through us. And so I, I even pray today that as you're hearing this sermon, and, and, and not just today, but, but as you go about your week, that your, your prayer would just be, yes, Lord. Yes, here's my life. I give it over to you. And so we see these, these first two exhortations that Peter offers to live with resurrection hope and to live with reflected holiness, the, the holiness of God being lived out through us. But there's, there's a third. And the third exhortation is that God desires us as exiles 
to live with reverent fear. To live with reverent fear. Uh, look at verse 17 of 1 Peter 1. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. God is our father, no doubt. He's adopted us and that makes us his children. But he is also judge of the world. And, and, and just like we were to set our fully on that, that time when Jesus returns, to set our hope fully on it, after Jesus returns, God is going to judge both believers and unbelievers. And interestingly enough, though, though we, we, because of the grace of Christ, we don't have to worry about his wrath, he actually does judge both believers and unbelievers according to, his, according to our deeds. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 has a passage that speaks about this. This is specifically talking about how he will judge believers. Listen to what he says. It says, each one's work will become manifest. Speaking of Christians, for the day, that's, that's judgment day, capital D, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And just, you know, fire is indicative of, of, of judgment. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation, that's the foundation of their faith in Christ by the gospel. If, anyone has, if, anyone, uh, if that work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And so what Paul is saying here is that what we do in this life as Christians really does matter. Uh, we, we don't have to have you know, fear like it's, like it's anxiety or dread, but we do need to have a recognition that, that what we do with whatever number of days and years that God gives us in exile, in this Oz, actually will have eternal significance. For the one that, that receives rewards, um, these are those that live for God's purposes and glory. But for those, it says that, that suffered loss, it simply means that there were significant aspects of their life that just weren't lived for the Lord. They, they were lived for trivial things. And, or, or maybe there was even a, a, a lot of, of, of sin that was still connected to their experience as, as followers of Christ. Now, Scholars have, have said that, that rewards in heaven could mean many things. But, but many of them agree that probably what, what, they, what they mean is our greater capacity to experience our relationship with the Lord. It might even be that we have greater callings. Uh, and these rewards are eternal. And so, so if you think about these short number of years that God gives us on this spinning globe, you know, that's rotating around, this spinning ball of fire. I, it, we ought to live with, with holy fear, with, with, with reverent fear, knowing that one day he's going to look at our lives and say, what have you done for my name? Now, once again, salvation is not based upon works whatsoever. Salvation is based solely upon uh, grace, and we experience that by placing faith in Christ. But then what we do in this life actually 
speaks to what our eternity will be like. And so Peter reminds us that we should live with fear in light of this. We should live with a, a reverence and, and an awe in the judgment that will come. And, and he goes on to say, part of what will spur us on to live for Christ is when we remember what Christ has done for us. In fact, verses 18 and 19 of 1 Peter 1, he goes on to say, so remember, he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so as we think about things unseen, and one of them being the historic fact of God's love for us found in Jesus' death and resurrection, this personal reality that just about all of you in this room have experienced, that fact should lead us to say, yes, Lord. That should lead us to surrender more and more of ourselves to him so that he can be glorified through our lives. And in fact, what, what Peter does throughout the rest of his letter is he actually talks about what it means to live in reverent fear and in reflected holiness and what it means to, to await this resurrection and to have hope. He, he tells us to do things like this. Believers, Legacy Church, for you to love one another deeply. Your, that your love for one another will actually be one of the things that both praises him, but also speaks to the world that he and you are different. He'll go on to say that, that we should keep our conduct among outsiders. It just simply means those who aren't yet believers in Christ. We should keep it honorable. He even says that, that the, our way of life, our, our choosing to, to be like the pig, to live surrendered before Jesus, might actually lead some of them to give praise to God on the day when he visits, meaning on the day he returns. Because why? Because they've already trusted him. They've, they've put their faith in Jesus Christ. They know him. And so the way we live our lives is one of the way we live in reverent fear. He also, in this letter, tells us to be under authority. To be under the authority, he says, of, of the government, but also our bosses. And, and sometimes, let's be honest, we don't have good bosses. And sometimes we don't really like who's in power in the government. But the key thing is, is that we live in such a way that we show, we, we show that we trust God. That at the end of the day, this isn't our home. I'm, yes, technically a citizen of the United States, but my true citizenship and identity is found elsewhere. So I can give honor and respect to those in authority. He'll also go on to talk about how husbands and wives live with love and respect for one another. This also is evidence. And lastly, he will say that every single one of us here who are followers of Jesus ought to be able to provide the reason for the resurrected hope that's within us. These things together bring about faithfulness in the life of you and I who are exiles Faithfulness in the life of, of us who, who live in a strange place. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, that was actually one of the secrets to those who live by faith. If you go and look in that chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, it's sometimes called the hall of faith. Men and women of God who, who lived not experiencing all that they were promised, but what? 
keeping their eyes set on that time when they would experience a new homeland, the homeland they were waiting for. And, and how did they do that? It's because they knew that they were strangers and exiles in the world. And so, brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to not, to not keep your attention, your, your focus on all the things in the world that could really bring despair and pessimism and, and, and get us down, but to keep our eyes, our hearts set upon Jesus, upon this firm foundation, these sure promises that God offers us. In 1707, Isaac Watts, one of the most famous hymn writers of, of all time, he, he wrote uh, a hymn called, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And, and I want to read to you just the first couple of lines in this song as it relates to our life as exiles. Watts wrote, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be an offering or present far too small. Love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I'm not really sure there's a better way to think about what it means to live as exiles today than to offer Christ our all. His love that not only He demonstrated for us on the cross, but His love that He offers us day by day, the, the Spirit of God living in us that leads us, guides us in to that promise that awaits us when He returns. And that would be my encouragement for you today, that, to allow love to demand your all, to say yes to Jesus. And maybe there's even one here today that you've not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that, that God created human beings to be in relationship with them. That, that was his, his deepest desire. He wanted to show us his character and his, his love. But that every single human being from the very beginning has turned away from him. They, you know, you do you has been always the, the maxim of human beings. We've sought to do things our own way. And that's called sin. Sin is when we turn away from, from God, his authority, his lordship, and we choose to go our own way. And, and when we do that, that sin, that, that, those decisions, brings consequences, including death. Death is, is for sure one day the, the cessation of our, of our breath and the, our heart stop beating. But death is even more so separation from God, separation from our Creator, and in many ways, separation from other people. That's why there's so much conflict in the world today. There's so much hatred. But the Bible tells us this, that though that's the bad news, there's, there's really good news. That God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. Jesus, the, 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 the God-man who came in the flesh, who never ever turned away from the authority that his Father in heaven had. And so he never sinned. And he became this perfect sacrifice for us. Just like Peter was talking about, he offered up himself for us. He stood in our place. And the Bible says that when he did that upon the cross, that all of the sin of humanity was placed upon him. All of it. Every, every lustful thought. Every hateful word. Everything done for greed's sake. All of it 
for all eternity was placed on him. He brought that sin into a grave. He put it to death, and, and three days later, he rose from the grave. And, and, and because he lives, because he resurrected, he was able to offer not just forgiveness from sin, but true life, true life to any who would turn to him and, and believe in him. And, and that's what we've read today, that for those who believe in the Lord Jesus, God gave them the right to become children of God. If there's any here today that have never placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that's what he desires, is for you to recognize that you're a sinner, recognize that he's a savior, and to see that he has come to meet the need that every single one of us have, the need of being forgiven and reconciled to our God. If you desire that today, if that's you, you, you you've heard here about how God's called us to live, but now you're hearing also about how God has called us in his love to receive him. You can receive Christ simply by saying, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would forgive me. I, I, I see that, that you are God's son and that you came, you lived and died and rose again. And I, I want to trust you. I don't want to put my faith in myself anymore or anything else. And I pray that you would give me new life. He will do that today if you'll trust him. I pray, church, that you would pray with me that we would be exiles who live faithfully so that God would receive the glory. Let's pray. Father, this morning we, we do praise you and thank you. Thank you that not only that you've, you've given us justification, you've, you've made us right before you because Jesus was perfect and in him now we, we find our holiness but Lord, you've also called us to be holy. You said, I've got things for you to do because you have a new identity, a new way of living because you're sons and daughters of God. Father, that's our prayer today is that, that we as, as exiles, as people who have a home, a true home that's somewhere else, that we would live differently today. That we would live with resurrection hope and we would live with reflected holiness father that we would also live in in reverent fear not not being scared of you god but recognizing that you've called us to a different life and what we do in this world really does matter help us lord to be faithful to you and and with that faithfulness then lead to praise praise not just in our lives but in the lives of people around us as we live out the life of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.